So we are in 1 Corinthians 4. It has been a, uh, uh, a, lot of, a lot of lessons that Paul has been teaching the Corinthian church. They had almost nothing right in the Corinthian church. And, uh, and in that way, they're a lot like many other churches throughout history. We, that's simply how, uh, how churches are. We get proud. We think we're doing okay. We lose sight of our need of the word of God. We lose sight of how necessary the gospel is for everything, and we start stuffing up and get way off track. And so uh, once the, the compass of the gospel is out of the window, or at least away from the driver's seat, everything else goes wrong, and it's very difficult to know whether direction is correct. Well, in the Corinthian church, there was sin uh, exploding through the church. It wasn't being disciplined. It wasn't being addressed. There was all sorts of theological issues. And so Paul hears about it as well as receives a letter from them asking questions. And so this is his letter uh, where he's answering those questions and answering those or writing about those problems that he's heard about or seen. That one of the big problems was division, and we've been recapping this over the last three, four chapters. This has been since chapter 1, verse 10. He's been addressing the fact that there's factions and divisions in the church and really getting to the root cause of that, how to fix it, what to focus on. But lately, he's been talking about that one of the reasons that there was divisions was because they're, they're seeing leadership in the church either as something that they want to attain to or as something that other people have, but in general, they're seeing the leadership positions in the church as something that gives power and, and popularity and influence. And if you can just follow the most popular guy, you'll get all the fame in the world and you'll get the honor. In the, and, and those leaders were not godly in themselves. They, uh, some of them were, but other leaders were, uh, were, were, were living on the, the wisdom of the world, just being like their culture. That's all they were doing. And so here's Paul writing to them, and he makes very clear, if I can recap the last couple of chapters, it's, it's that he's been saying, leaders are fellow servants together, so don't pit them against one another. It's not Paul versus Apollos who came later to the Corinthian church. It's Paul with Apollos and Peter and whoever else teaches you. They are fellow servants to the one king, not rulers of empires for you to serve. So you need to see this in church leadership, and we've been looking at this, that if you want biblical church leadership, don't look towards people who try and take you to work for their own empire, but follow those who will point you to Jesus and give an example of how to serve Jesus, because that is the Christian life. And he says that this actually applies to all of us. It's not just that the leaders should have that mindset. It's actually the mindset we all need to have. We all need to remove thoughts of pride and, and wanting prowess and power and influence. We all, all Christians need to put that away or we will infect and affect everything we do with that. But what's very interesting in, so look at chapter 4 and verse 8 onwards. Up until verse 13, he's actually going to be making the point that the reason. The reason they have had such terrible mindsets about leadership, the reason that he's had to push back on them so much and remind them, you're not my judge, I don't care ultimately what you have to say, I, have to, I care about what Jesus has to say. The reason he's had to push back on them and tell them to sit down so much is because they, in his estimation as we're about to read, have allowed themselves to be so influenced by the culture and so affected by the world that they're in that they have ceased 
to become objective critics. He's saying, I can't even trust how you say about me, what you say about your leaders, what you say about your own self. You've lost the credibility to really pass judgment on yourself fairly because I look at you and see worldliness and love of approval of the world. You're drunk on pride. You're drunk on the world's um, approval and honor and wisdom. And therefore, and this is where the warning comes for us, as we start looking through all of this and feeling the, 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 the real weight of the, the, the weight that Paul puts behind this sarcastic uh, interrogation on them, what we need to realize is that this is also our risk. We, if we, if we start looking to the culture for uh, how we ought to live, speak, act, think, if we, once that starts happening to us, we lose the ability to actually start thinking objectively. And everything we do is affected by that, by that new true north that we've given ourselves. And so if you're taking, um, uh, taking advice or taking example from the world we live in, in st- even the Christian world, Don't look at other Christians and compare to see whether or not you're being biblical. Look to the word of God. And if we don't do that, then we start becoming drunk on their approval, drunk on the world's uh, goods and possessions and and, uh, attention, and we become, just like the Corinthian church, completely losing perspective. And with that intro, I want us to read verse 8 through to verse 21. And I pray that it will make a lot of sense. Verse 8, Paul says, Already you have all that you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited, exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but, but you are strong. We are held, uh, you are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent to you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in the church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out the talk of these arrogant people, not of the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness. May God bless the reading of his perfect, inerrant, authoritative word to us this evening. Well, we're seeing here this apostolic reprimand, and, and we sort of touched even last week at our conference, but, but also I mentioned it last week. We're going we're gonna to look at this apostolic use of sarcasm, of, of, uh, of satire, as he 
uh, has come off the back of saying that, that he and the other leaders, he and Apollos and the apostles, but all church leaders, right? He's been saying, we have nothing that hasn't been given to us from God. So, so don't look at us as people who are amazing speakers or, or have the ability to heal or, or are, are, are church builders in and of ourselves. The only things that we do is what we have received by the Spirit of God. It's all gifts, it's all grace, it's not earned. He then says that about themselves as well. So you need to recognize, maybe you're, you're an amazing singer. Maybe you're really good and effective at preaching the gospel. And, and whenever you open your mouth in the office place, people are always intrigued, want more questions, and often people get saved. Maybe you just have boldness like nobody else. Maybe, maybe for you it's discernment or it's, it's an ability to see through situations and be very, very wise by the Spirit. Maybe you have the gift of generosity or hospitality, and God bless you for that. But what Paul is saying, and particularly to the Corinthian church, their main gifts were prophecy and tongues, and they were aiming at all the, the majestic, amazing spiritual gifts, healing and tongues and prophecy and whatever would look good. And here's Paul saying that while you're supposed to be thankful for what you have and not puffed up, you are doing the opposite. And, and so he turns to them in this satirical tirade. He says, already, okay, so at the end of verse 7 he says, why do you boast as if you did not receive what you got? In other words, why are you claiming that what you have was earned? It wasn't. But, you can hear him thinking in behind verse 8, but... While we're talking about what you've got, I mean, it's evident that you have everything. You don't lack a single thing. You guys are at the top of the Christian kingdom. If this was a, a Ponzi scheme, if this was the, the pyramid scheme, you guys are whack bang at the top in the middle. I just wish, you can hear Paul say, I wish that I can become half the Christians that you guys are. I really, I pray that, that the Corinthians, they're, they're my idols, they're my mentors. I want to be as good as you guys are. And, and the foolish among the congregation, those who are so puffed up in their pride, they're hearing this and they're saying, yeah, that's been my prayer too, Paul. I've, I want you to learn like we have. I want you to be like us, and, and I'm just glad you're beginning to see it. But the wise, or at least those humble enough to hear the rebuke, are feeling the sarcasm at this moment. And he keeps on going. It's... Uh, he says, already you have become rich. It, it's almost as if Paul's like apologizing to the church. I'm, I'm sorry for holding you guys back. I didn't realize you were doing so great and, and that us meek little silly apostles who preach the cross and the resurrection, all this, I didn't realize we were holding you guys back so much. I, I apologize, Paul's, Paul's getting there. He goes, you, without us, right, Forget us. Like, what did we do? We preached the gospel that saved you. Irrelevant. Uh, we taught you the word of God. Irrelevant. We taught you to stop swinging in the, in the cultic prostitute temples, and we taught you to stop you know, offering human sacrifices. That's all irrelevant. That, that matters nothing. You guys, without us, you're the, you're the boss. You guys are the kings. He says, you know, I, I almost wish that you were kings. That's what he says. And would that you did reign. Like, I'd love if, if, if my friends were up on the throne, because then, in your mercy, of course, lords, if you would see it fitting, you could throw me some crumbs. I'd just love that if you could share with me some of your, your royal reign in the spirit of glory. Although we are so far back from the line, I don't know whether we're even worthy of that. And I hope you can imagine the Corinthian church sort of feeling the shame at the rebuke. But he keeps on going because he's Paul and he keeps twisting the knife. He says, verse 9, I think 
And here's the contrast. You reigning kings, you rich, having everything you need, being being fed the the grapes by your servants. I want to be like you. We're not like you yet. Verse 9, he says, I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle. And this is this picture, actually, in the the ancient world. if, If Rome or many other countries as well, but particularly it was, it was Rome, they would, they would go to an area, they would defeat a, an army, or they would, they would take a city, they would capture land, and what they would do is they would slaughter many. They would just leave them blooded in the streets. They would burn down uh, some of their places, they would really make a mockery of them, but they would keep their best fighters alive, the, the enemies. They would keep their best enemies alive, chain and shackle them up and put them on the very end of the train of soldiers that would come back to the town that was victorious. So you can imagine the the generals walking through with the trumpets and the incense that the Romans used to do, and and then the soldiers are coming through, and the flag bearers, and the men on their horses, and at the very back, last of all, which is what Paul there says of himself. Us apostles, last of all. Back there are those who are being shown as as an open mockery to everybody else. Often they would be stripped down, maybe even naked, dragged through the street. If they fell over, they had to catch their feet to keep up up and not be dragged along. And once they got to the center square, they would take these men, last of all, as a spectacle to everybody, and they would hang them, behead them, throw them to the wild animals, whatever it would be in the custom of the day. Here's Paul saying that that right there, that's us. You know, you, you guys think, you Corinthians, you think you're right up the front of the, 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 the parade and you think you're the ones up on the seats, on the float with the flags around you, having confetti thrown at you and God bless you for that. But us humble little servants, I don't know what we did wrong, but we're right up the back and we are last of all in the world. It's as if God made a, is, 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 is complicit in this mistake. You know, you guys have it all right, but us and God, we just keep on, we're humble, and we keep on getting hated by people, and I don't know, us and the Lord will apologize to you on Judgment Day, Corinthians. That's the, that's the spirit of, of the rebuke. He says, therefore, so us apostles are last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. You can see that this battle that is going on is not simply a town versus town, a city versus city, or even a nation versus a nation. This is cosmic kingdom of Christ versus cosmic kingdom of the devil and sin. And, and so the, those who are spectating and, and laughing and mocking, or at least watching the, the, the dishonor of the apostles who are living the true Christian life of dying to self and sacrifice, the people looking on are not the, just the people lining the city but angels, the whole world, and people. And so there's the picture of, uh, of the apostolic office. These who were sent out as, as sheep among wolves. Jesus said, a servant is not greater than his master. And the master came and died. That was his leadership. So then tracks down into, into verse 10. But, but just... Just last there, one of the other meanings when he says here, like men sentenced to death, last of all, one of the other maybe inferences he's sort of doubling up here, it might be one or the other, maybe it's both, I don't know, I'll say both. One of the other inferences was that in the pagan world, if you figured that 
one of the gods was angry at you. Pick one, whatever it is. There's no rain, our crops are dying, or our babies keep on being born with mutations. We need to appease that god, or whoever it was that you wanted to, to appease. What they would do, instead of the whole town suffering, they would pick somebody that had no friends, uh, no family, no real uh, future, no job, nothing big relying on them, and they would take them and sacrifice them to the god as a life as a living human sacrifice on the altar, gut them and burn them. And that's kind of also what Paul's saying here. It's like, yeah, we're the ones sentenced to death. We're the ones who are thrown in dishonor. We're the ones who are considered as nothing by everybody. But because we take that spot, you guys get the benefits. You get to keep living. Now, he's by no means affirming the pagan system, but, but it's, this, it's this inference, this cultural suggestion that they would get. Because, yeah, yeah, we're dying yeah, it's, we're thrown into dishonor, but it's so that you can receive the gift. So it keeps on going. Verse 10, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. Now, we can make a massive mistake here and start thinking that he's, he's turned to actually uh, 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 affirming them in their wisdom because in the last few, few chapters, he's been saying and really comparing Folly and wisdom. And it sounds like he just, he said, well, you guys are wise in Christ, which means you're foolish to the world. But that's not it. He's, he's saying, and remember over the last few chapters, he says he's really contrasted the, the glory of the world and the shame that you get for being a Christian. The, the wisdom of the world, which is all about being impressive and being smart, and the folly of the gospel, which is stupidity to the people that are perishing. And the, the strength of the world, which is all in, 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 in out, outward strength and taking over and all of that, compared to the weakness of the gospel, which has at its center a dead God. He says in all of those ways, he's going to now compare. He says, us apostles are living in light of the cross. And you Corinthians are living in light of the world. And so he says, we're fools for Christ's sake, but you're wise in Christ. In fact, you've aced it. You can have both, Chris, both Christ and the world's wisdom. I didn't know that could happen. I've just spent three chapters saying you can't mix the two, but you figured it out. I wish I had understood that equation. Because we are weak, you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. And so I... I think you can see the Corinthians shrinking in their seats as the clarity of his comparison, the, the satirical nature of it starts becoming more and more clear. I want us also to start putting ourselves in this seat. It's not true that we can take every sin of the Corinthians and say it's on us. Chapter 5 is going to at least suggest that if you've read ahead. But, but we still need to be able to, to, to hear the rebuke of the apostle and say, I'm not better than a Corinthian. I'm, I'm no better than the people of the first century. Just like I'm no better than the, the fools of the Old Testament who kept on making their mistakes. I'm a human. They were human. They had the spirit. I have the spirit. They give in to temptations. I give in to temptations. They're affected by their culture. I'm affected by my culture. So start thinking for ourselves, are we living the kind of lifestyle that if Paul was to write to you personally, maybe us corporately, how would, he, how would he speak? How, would, he, would he have this, this glaring contrast between Hope Church or your life and his life? Would he flick through the pages of your autobiography and say, wow, this is royal living. I'd give my, my back to be able to live the way that you have. Jeez. 
Or is he going to look at your life and say, yeah, that looks in line with how I lived. Gospel-focused, eternally-minded, other people serving, local church-centered. Is that, is that how we are living? Look at what he says in verse 11. These apostles and, like him, the other Christian leaders, and to all those who follow in their steps, all Christians, he says, verse 11, to the present, to this very present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. It, I guess God just never saw fit to give me a castle. I, I would love to be a king like you guys. And very likely many in the Corinthian church were quite uh, uh, wealthy or well-to-do, living in some of those tremendous houses. And he goes, I just, maybe I was never humble enough for God to be able to. He knew a castle would ruin my heart. But you guys have nailed it. And we labor, working with our own hands. I think that's a backhanded insult as well. Like, get a job, I think he's saying. We, we were preaching the word and mending tents, working for you and working for ourselves to make money. And yet here you are, maybe, maybe taking large amounts of generosity from other people. He says, when reviled, we bless. That's a hard one. You ever been reviled? You ever used... You ever gotten in a conversation with somebody, or, or maybe it's, it's online, that's always the most insulting about it, or, 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 or in person, or, or in a conversation, or you hear your name being thrown about, and people are just disregarding you, and dishonoring you, and reviling you, and you, you get, maybe it's just me, maybe you are way more holy than me, and you get angry, and you, you just start getting ready to swing, because I'm not, I never said that, I, that's completely untrue, that's a made-up lie, and, and, and the, the most natural human response is to revile back, is to stab back and reestablish your reputation. And Paul says, us, no, we bless. And that was entirely opposite to the Corinthians. To them, you were supposed to revile back. That's the whole point. That's how their society worked. Somebody digs you, dig them back. They say you've got a pathetic job, tell them their mum's overweight and they don't have anything to, to boast of and, and just start throwing all these horrendous insults at them. That's what the respectable do. It's like the, the worst case of, of Jerry Springer politician uh, 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 sort of episode that you can imagine going on. It's just insults, it's insults, it's reviling. And Paul says, not for the Christian. We bless. We hear insults, we think of what we might say back to them that would be beneficial for them. We hear our name thrown in the mud, we get back up and try and, and bless them however we can. When we are persecuted, we endure. We don't give up. What the Christian church could be if we had some more spine, if we could take some scorn, take some pushback, even some insult and some stupidity from our brothers and sisters, it's always going to be in the church. And if we could just stick it out and keep our mind on the gospel, on the good of the local church, and keep on going, we would be much more effective. And this is what Paul is saying. By example, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. You want that on a badge? Scum of the world. If, I don't know. I don't do dishes. I've never done the dishes. But apparently, people who do dishes, I do. I'm just joking. Don't I, badge? But, but if, you know, you're doing the dishes and then there's, there's that pot that your husband was cooking something in. And maybe it was the, the marinade for the barbecue or some, you don't even know. It's from the back of the fridge from about seven Christmases ago. And you take it out and the husband goes, I'll soak it. That's what it needs. So he fills it with hot water and puts some soap and he leaves it there for a, for a while. And, oh, 
the wife got to it before me. Ah, well. And, and, he's, and, and the, the, the stuff starts scraping off the sides and that slimy. You don't even know what it was. But that stuff that you then scrape into the bottom of the sink, that's the scum. That, that, from, from the word here, that's scum of the world. That's you. That's what we're supposed to be looked at as like in this world. The stuff you scrape off and it's disgusting to even touch. And you start gagging when you try and get it out of the bottom of the sink. That. As you. I know we, we have jobs and we have friends and we have family and we, we're always trying to be respectful and respectable and dignified, but we need to know and we should not be surprised that if we get treated like that, flung out, disgusted, people can't stand the gospel we preach, we should not be surprised. Scum of the world was Christ. Scum of the world were the apostles. Scum of the world are every Christian generations that come after them. And to this, I think much of the Western church, us included, me included, and of course the Corinthians were very embarrassed. How can this be the leadership? This Paul writing to them with scars all over his back for them. Paul, who never took a wife and had a family because he wanted to serve them. Paul, who never took a job in the professor uh, uh, position or never went down to, to the synagogue and got a well-paying job, which he could have done. He never did any of that for them. And here they are complaining about he's a bit harsh and he doesn't really know how to be respectable in the world and how many people would really vote him person of the year in Corinth. You know, not many. I think he, Paul has some things to learn. But now their, their pride is, is falling flat. And Paul says very fairly here, we have, we've just seen his apostolic reprimand, but we see now the affectionate reminder that he gives them. He says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed. Okay, that wasn't evident. It sounded like that he was trying to shame them and embarrass them. But he says, I don't write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as beloved children. There's, a, there's another occasion in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 when he says a very similar thing about grief. And he says in chapter 7, verse 9 of the second letter, he says, As it is, I rejoice, because, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. So in his sec he, he's heard back since his first letter when he wrote this, that they were super offended. Duh, he knew that. They were really offended. They thought they should tell him, we're really sad at what you said. And he says, I'm glad you were grieved. Because your grieving led to repentance. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. If you're just soft, you're just thin-skinned, and you get offended at stuff, Paul says that leads to death. Because you can't take the medicine you need. You can't, you can't take what you need to have which is good for you. And you just keep yourself cushioned, untouched by the word, hard against the word of the gospel. And this is why the Puritans used to say that hard preaching makes soft people. And soft preaching makes hard people. And so Paul here is saying, I know you're going to feel some shame, but no, my ultimate point is not to make you feel ashamed, but to exhort you, to admonish you. Look at verse 14. As my beloved children. He's a dad in the truest sense of this church. And he says then, you, you have countless guides in Christ. There's another insult in the background there. Guides is like tutors, people who would train young children while their dad was away. You know, it's a 
like kindergarten teachers. So, and the word for countless here means 10,000. He's saying, look, I know you've got 10,000 people trying to teach you A, B, and C, and 1, 2, and 3. And that's good. You need it. I'm glad. But you've only got one dad. You're very immature. Lots of people are helping and teaching and exhorting, but you've only got one dad, and that's me. I'm the one who planted the seed and who, through that gospel, you became saved. I'm the one who planted this church and built it. And he's not boasting. He's exhorting them as his children to believe that what he's saying is affectionate. Saying, of course I want you to feel a bit of a sting. It's because I love you as my children. For I became your father, verse 15, I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's what he means. I'm not your physical father. I'm your spiritual father because you came from my preaching. He says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. He's saying, if, if anybody has a right to say, please live the way I'm living, it's, it's the one who has sacrificed so much for you. Because no matter what the other guy says, it's, it's at the moment all talk. Until he's put in the hours, shed the blood, been the one through whom God has used in your life, it's all talk. And Paul is saying, I love you. You're my children. I have a vested interest in you staying spiritually alive. Of course I'm going to yell at you if you're running towards the road and there's an 18-wheeler coming. But that yell is in love. I want you to come away from the spiritual danger you're in of worldliness. So be imitators of me. I had a, a few points here of how to be a father in discipleship. And this applies to women and to men. But those who want to be Christian spiritual parents, and this should be all of us. Paul's just said to imitate him. One of the ways he wants us to imitate him is what he's just been speaking about. Using our life to serve the local church and to bring forth spiritual children. So number one, spend yourself these are five ways to obey 1 Corinthians 4, verse 16. Imitate me, Paul says. So number one, spend yourself in the evangelistic task, whatever the cost. This is in your workplace. This is in your home. This is in your street, maybe through the outreaches of the local church. Spend yourself in getting the gospel out of your mouth, through your service, into the ears and hearts of other people. Then, number two, once there are those converted, teach them thoroughly. Teach them the word of God. Sit down with them over, over coffee and see how they're going. And those who have believed by you, do not neglect them in their infancy, but teach them into maturity. Uh, it means come alongside them and get them to local church. Uh, it means uh, 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 come alongside them and, and help them develop good spiritual disciplines. This is what a father does. He doesn't leave a post-it note on the bench saying, learn to drive or figure out taxes. He teaches. He walks with and exemplifies. And number three, exactly that, exemplify your teaching so that you can say, do what I do. I've told you all of this. I've taught you thoroughly. I keep taking you to church. I've shown you all the good stuff. Do what I do. And which means that we need to be those who are exemplifying in our life, both in our individual acts as well as our, our whole lifestyle, a living that looks like, it, uh, like Paul's life. Number four, speak the hard words. Some of us want to be good disciples. Some of us want to be soul winners, want to be leaders in the church in the future. And, and that's good, but we are afraid to use hard words when it's necessary. 
And if you're not willing to do that, you're not ready to be someone who's, who's really cultivating because to cultivate and grow a plant or grow a child, you need to be able to snip off the branches and snip off the fingers when they're being disrespectful. Just checking how many of you are listening. Don't snip off your children's fingers when they're being disrespectful. I really wanted some more response to that. I hope that's not a, a principle of, of uh, discipline. If it works, it works, right? Uh, but, but you need to be able to speak those hard words to your disciples, to your spiritual children. And lastly, look at what Paul says in verse 17. Deploy and repeat. Those who you've trained up, those who you've exemplified to, those who you've taught, those who were saved through your gospel, deploy them. Send them out to go do the same thing. Put them in, you know, get, get them to step forwards into ministries and acts of service and then repeat from step one through to step five through them and again. So Paul says, verse 17, I want you to imitate me, so follow his logic, that's why I sent you Timothy. We would think he would say, I want you to imitate me, so that's it, I'm coming to you. So you can just one step away, follow and imitate me. But in Paul's mind, he had done such a good job in discipling Timothy that he is saying, if you follow Timothy's way of life, if you follow Timothy's teaching, his example, you are imitating me. To imitate Tim is imitating Paul. And so he'd done such an amazing job with this, and so he's deploying and repeating the process through Timothy. That's an amazing, that's a good picture of discipleship right there. So you don't even need to be there at the next meeting. He's discipling the next generation of Christians. So we'll just finish off here as well. No, we're not. We'll get towards finishing. I'm trying to be more honest. We're going to get towards finishing in verse 18 through 21, uh, where we, we've seen the apostolic reprimand. We've seen the affectionate reminder. And now we're going to look at his abrasive rebuke. Paul had just been quite firm with them, but he's expecting repentance. He was quite, uh, uh, he was shaming them into repentance. That's, that's true. And, and he's just said, but you're my children, and by imitating me, you prove that you don't need to be spoken harshly to. But, but, there will be some, Paul knows, who will not respond to the rebuke who will not listen to the apostolic words and therefore will continue in sin in the local church. And that is why he, re he writes 18 through to verse 21. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. He's almost prophetically looking forward and saying, some of you are going to hear what I'm saying and you're going to sit there, you're going to laugh about it and you're already making up excuses and figuring out ways to turn this rebuke for your own good, to lift yourself up in the local church and shame Paul. I know that's happening, Paul says, as if, as if I'm not going to come out and find you. The, the apostolic presence is something in the early church that was very significant. It's like, dad's coming home and everything better be in order, kid. And so here's this six-year-old sitting in the middle of the lounge room on top of the couch with his cardboard sword saying, Dad won't do anything, Mum. And Dad's stepping closer to the house. So Paul says, some of you are arrogant as if I'm not going to come to you. Verse 19, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. In other words... Paul's not going to walk in and say, what's your uh, uh, approval of yourself? 
What's your testimony about yourself? And give me your own resume about what you think of you. He's not going to do that because he doesn't care what we say about ourselves. Somebody who has achieved nothing can prop themselves up as the most glorious Christ-like servant of Jesus and other people listen. But Paul's smarter than that. He's not going to come in and ask what they think of themselves. He's going to come in and ask what God thinks of them. And I, I don't mean that he's going to dial in and get a prophetic message. I'm saying he's going to assess very tangible things in their life and then be able to assess whether they actually have any spiritual power at all. Which means that we can do the same thing. What he, well, the, the test I'm going to sort of point to now is applicable to us, and we can do the same with those who try and arrogantly bring division in the local church for the sake of their own popularity. He's saying, I will find out their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. And what he's referring to is all of the... But when he says power, he means the work of the Spirit through the gospel. That's what he's meaning. So he's coming to them and he's saying, I'm not going to ask you what gifts you've got and what you think of yourself. I'm going to ask you, how many people has God saved through you? How many times has God used you in help of the local church? How many people can look to you for teaching and example? How many people look to you and see a Christian leader in humility? So he's going to look back and go do a little Bible study with these arrogant men through 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 21 and ask them, since the wisdom of God, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Say, Mr. Arrogant Man in the local church, how many has God saved through you, through the folly you preach? Because if none, God has not shown his approval on your life. Empowerment by the Spirit. This is a, a principle I want to apply to us. Empowerment by the Spirit is a sign of God's approval. Where we see people being used by God, we ought to see in some sense that God is willing to use them and put them out front because they are. There's nothing particular about them that has come out yet that would say that we should avoid them. So Paul's saying, if God's used you, then I'll believe you've got righteousness, holiness, spiritual power. But as yet, I doubt I'll find that. Or he'll point towards chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. That when he says, I was in weakness and trembling, but through my message, through the demonstration of spirit and power, you came to faith. He's going to ask those men, how much building of the local church have you done by the spirit? He's going to ask these people who are puffed up and filled with hot air. He's going to ask them, chapter 3, verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. Have you planted and watered and seen any growth? Or are you standing here proud, for no reason, puffing yourself up. And he says, when I come and I test them that way, it will be like a rod. Look at verse 21. What do you wish? I'm, I'm giving you a choice here. I'm not just coming and beating people up. I'm saying, Paul says, that you have the choice. Do you want rod or gentle love? He says, shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? I feel like maybe the way that Paul's writing here or the way that Paul would speak when he arrives... A lot of people, especially 21st century Christians, would say, that wasn't very loving and gentle. And he would say, exactly. It's because this is not a situation that took love and gentleness. 
Of course, there's a sense which we do everything in love, so even the rod is in love. But yes, the, the tone, the atmosphere, the, the, the vibe of what he's going to be saying is not going to feel loving and gentle. Just like not everything a father says to his children is always going to feel gentle and kind and nice. Paul, Paul says that, that these men are, in, in, other, in, in Philippians chapter 3, he's going to talk about men like this as dogs, evildoers. If you act like a wolf, Paul treats you like a dog and he kicks you out of the church. Yes, it was going to feel harsh. Yes, that makes us pretty uncomfortable and how we're all supposed to be loving and nice and kind and never say anything about sin and, and things like that. But here is Paul. He, he values the local church too much. Here's, here's what I want you to hear now as we wrap up. God loves you far too much to speak only gently and, and nicely and, and respect our sins. I thank the Lord that Jesus came preaching a, a hard gospel and then he sent his spirit to enable us to heed the warnings of that hard gospel. And, and he enabled us to be changed by the gospel so that instead of being offended by him, we become offended at our sin. We become repented of it. We give our life over to Christ and we start, like Paul, disregarding the approval of the world, disregarding the attempts to be impressed to the world. We disregard all the attempts to be famous and popular and influential in the world, if only, if only we can be fathers and mothers in the gospel. I pray that for you, that you would, that you would tonight start balancing up. What am I really living for? People's approval or to, be, to go through the pains of fathering and mothering them in the gospel? If we value the local church in this sense, and this is really the, the end of the, the first section of, for the, of 1 Corinthians, as we look back over the last chapters, are you one who is living in light of the cross? Almost, almost proud of how, how little you are respected when you speak the words of Christ and people do not like it, and yet rejoicing in God when he uses you to save people. That's our heart. That's our, our mission here at Hope Church and all those who love the word of God and, and live in light of the Great Commission know that joy. So I'm just going to pray over us and ask that you would join us. Father God, by the sacrifice of Christ Jesus alone and by believing it, we are saved. And every one of us has to reckon with that and has to believe and be saved or we do remain condemned. But I pray, Father, that you would give to us a heart of faith, that any in the room tonight who still hold on to their sin would come to a point of repentance, would come to a point of faith and belief in Jesus in the gospel. And I pray, Lord, that all of us who have thus believed and who have become Christians by your Spirit, that you would lead us into a lifestyle that looks like Jesus, a, a lifestyle that looks like the cross, a lifestyle that looks like Paul, that we would be disregarding ourselves if only we can bring other people into the kingdom. We would speak as we need to speak to one another with gentleness and love and at other times with, with hard words for the sake of building one another up. I pray, God, that you would root out sin and arrogance and pri uh, pride and, and the puffed up uh, 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 tendencies that we can so often have so that we can be the type of church that Paul would be proud to pastor, that Jesus is, is uh, being glorified in and that people can be saved through. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, by your spirit, to the glory of the Father. And everybody said, amen, amen.